Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We've got to stop comparing ourselves to other people's highlight reels and their Instagram feeds. We have to stop being so tough on ourselves. We're all just doing our goddamn best. (laughs) And some days that'll be good. Some days that won't be very good, but there's another day. That is Mia Friedman, and this is episode 178 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. And thank you to Toe Hider at Toe Hider, fantastic musician from Melbourne who does all my music uh, for my fantastic theme song. This is uh, the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Hi, I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 178 with Mia Friedman. You can find her on Twitter at Mia Friedman, M-I-A-F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N. Thank you so much for being here. If you're new Welcome to the show. There's 177 other episodes that you can go and explore. If you, if you hear something here that you're into, uh, there's way more. Uh, so, look, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. This is the second time Mia's on the show, um, and uh, I'm excited f- to have another reason to speak to her today because uh, it's, it's it's pretty nice. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. This episode is brought to you by the magnificent humans who support the show on Patreon. Patreon's a way that you can support uh, people who are creating things uh, like this show, uh, it's really simple. For as little as five bucks a month, you can make sure this show gets to air. I would ask very kindly, if this show does anything for you in your week, if, if this show gives you an uplift at all, if you go, you know what, I feel kind of a, a little bit better after listening to that, just consider uh, as little as $5 a month at patreon.com slash osher and you can help this show come to air because uh, I can't make this show without my audio producer, Andy Ma or my production coordinator, Haley Van Spagna. Without those two people, there is no show and I need to pay those people. And um, I'm doing that 
through the, you guys helping me pay them. So thank you so, so much to all the people that do support me. Just by supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Osher, you get access to exclusive episodes. There will be another exclusive coming out at the start of May. I put them out once a month. And it will be with Lindsay McDougall, the uh, guitar player uh, from Frenzel Rhyme and former Triple J Breakfast host. He's a fantastic human being, and I look forward to uh, bringing that conversation to you. So uh, if you need to get me, uh, it's really easy. Just send me an email. Send osheremail at gmail.com. Thanks so much to all the podsies that came in this week. Hashtag P-O-D-S-I-E. It's a picture taken with the phone you're listening to this on of what you're looking at right now. I got a fantastic one from Adelaide Hills the other day, which was uh, pretty much the drive I used to take every afternoon on the way home from SAFM when I worked there, when I lived up in Blackwood, up in the sticks. Um, got some great ones from overseas, uh, a couple of great ones mid-jog, uh, some people cleaning the kitchen, some laundry. There's always some good domesticity going on when people uh, take a photo. It's great. I, I love it because it really helps me get to know you and helps uh, me help Everyone else gets to know you and us all get to know each other because we're all doing this together. We're all listening to this together. It's really quite nice. So just tag me in uh, an Instagram or a, a Twitter post or you can always send it to me. Uh, send Osher email at gmail.com. Yeah, hope your week is good. I uh, have done something that I, I didn't think I'd do again so soon, but I'm grateful that I have. I've actually started running again. Long time listeners of the show will know that I used to run every day. I used to run at least 10K a day. And I was, uh, I got to tell you, man, that Instagram, it's inspiring shit. Um, my friend Rich Roll uh, of the fantastic web, uh, web podcast, the Rich Roll podcast. Uh, over at, at Rich Roll on Twitter and Instagram. He's currently training for a, a colossal race happening up in uh, Scandinavia. And uh, his daily training stories have made me really think, you know what, man, I used to run with this guy. I, I, I should run again. Uh, but uh, a few years ago, I actually, I tore my labrum, which is a, uh, a ligament in the hip. And uh, it's been causing me a bunch of pain, but I've found myself a, a new guy, uh, a new kind of body mechanic to help me work on my running style and work on some different musculature things. And, um, he's helping me rehab slowly, gently, but yeah, I went for, I went and got a new pair of running shoes cause I haven't had a pair of running shoes for about three years. Went and got a pair of running shoes, sliced them up, went out the front door, ran in one direction for 15 minutes, turned around, came back. And then I stretched for the same amount of time. I stretched for about half an hour um, and it felt really quite good. Um, I was going through the garage the other day and I found all my old marathon running, my marathon medals. When you finish a marathon, they give you a participation medal, um, when you cross the finish line and I've, I've done a bunch of them, like a bunch of marathons, a bunch of half marathons, a bunch of trail marathons, oh, well, half marathons, trail and half marathons. I was like, wow, this used to be the thing I did. This is, this is part of the definition of what I considered myself to be as a human. Um, cycling has since taken over a lot of that, but running was such a massive thing for me. And um, I was talking to Georgia, uh, my stepdaughter, about it, and uh, she was asking me about the marathons, and I sent her a photo of, I guess it was the peak of, of you know, what I did was I ran the LA Marathon on a Sunday and then the following Saturday in New York, I ran the Queen's Half Marathon. So six days after running a full marathon, I ran a half marathon. And I sent her a photo and um, I'm wearing this particular running shirt and I found it cleaning out the garage as well. And I tried to put it on and I looked like a condom stuffed with cookie dough. 
Like, <laughs> there's no way I could fit that shirt again. I'm easily, easily 10 or 15 kilos heavier than I was then. And I, I did kind of get down. I got a bit sad about that because I'm just, you know, not that. But, you know, I took the next day off running and then the day after that, I went out and because uh, I ran 15 minutes in one direction, then turned around and came back the day before. And this time I ran 16 minutes in one direction, turned around and then came back. And then the next day I went out 17 minutes, turned around and came back, just slowly building. And i got to tell you, I can't even begin to describe the positive impact that even just that small amount of exercise has had on not only my energy, but absolutely my mental health, absolutely my headspace. No wonder I used to run so much. No wonder I used to run 10K every morning. No wonder I did it so much. And truth be told, I've actually, it, it's it's proven this week to make this week a pretty good week. Um, under Audrey's fantastic uh, direction, I've, I've cut my coffee intake down. So I'm only doing one coffee a day and I am cherishing that. You can take it out of my cold, dead hands, but I'm down to just one coffee a day, if you can believe that. So at the same time, I'm, I'm taking it slow and trying to be really careful with the running because I do have to build up various muscles so the, the, the ta- labrum tear doesn't get uh, annoyed. Um, and I'm just having to accept that change happens very gradually in the human body sometimes, especially once you get over 40. And that I am limited by the transformational capacity of my body and I can't expect my love handles to disappear overnight. I can't expect to fit back in those bloody clothes that I used to wear when I was super fit. But I'm just trying to be with trying to be with the mental health benefits of running half an hour a day more than the physical benefits right now. And and yes, I can't fit those clothes, but I can tell you my brain feels 200% better for at least 24 hours after only half an hour of running. And that's kind of what I'm sticking with because my body just remembers that once I run for, I don't know, like 15, 20 minutes, it starts to really pump out these endorphins. And in my opinion, they're better than any kind of antidepressant that I've ever taken, better than anything that I've ever (laughs) pulled out of a blister pack and swallowed. Um, So, yeah, I'm just kind of going with that. If I lose weight, that's going to be nice. But, you know, I'm kind of up against it with the meds I'm on at the moment. Um, that's just the, the reality of being on the kind of drugs I'm on. Um, but I'm really stoked about how good my head feels after going for a run. And I didn't run today cause I had a massive day, but I'm, I miss it already. And that's, that's a really good sign. So I, I hope for you this week that you might be able to share a bit of that. Um, maybe just, just go for a walk, just put your shoes on and walk out the front door in one direction for 15 minutes, turn around and come back. Maybe listen to a podcast while you do it. It's only half an hour and see how you feel. Because um, that's how, when I was super unfit, when I was super fat back in when I was like 18, 19, that's how I first, first, first lost the weight. I just walked until I felt like running one day. Um, but yeah, maybe go and do that and get back to me. Let me know how you go. I should tell you about my guest today because she's a, a hero of mine. I find her a very inspirational human being. Mia Friedman is a publisher, an author, a podcaster, a mother, and pretty much an all-around modern media mogul. 
Uh, Mia started her career in the then highly competitive Australian magazine industry, and she soon became the youngest ever editor of Cosmopolitan magazine at the age of 24. This is back in the early 90s. And in the middle of this career explosion, still in her mid-20s, she fell pregnant. And that set a course for the rest of her career, which would see her balancing work, family, and the numerous and very public attacks in the press that came with being a smart, outspoken and strong-willed woman in the public eye. Along with her husband, Mia runs the incredibly successful website, mamamia.com.au, which is part of the Mamma Mia Women's Network. And this is actually the second time that Mia's been on the show. She came back, uh, back in episode 30, she came on the show. A lot has changed in both of us. Um, which we do go into. Mia's just written a new book, which is out right now. It's called Work Strife Balance. And it is learnings from her experience of running a massive media company, being a public figure and being a mother of three kids and also a wife all at the same time. The book is out now. I thoroughly recommend you grab a copy, particularly if you're feeling a bit uh, snowed under, a bit drowning and all the busyness that suddenly seems to be enveloping all our lives. I don't know, you, you play with your smartphone enough, you check Facebook and Instagram and Twitter enough times, you suddenly feel really busy all day long. Um, you can find Mia on, on, on Twitter and Instagram, at Mia Friedman. And um, do let her know. If you hear anything in this show that does resonate with you, please let her know because she's quite active online, at Mia Friedman, F-R-E-E-D-M-A-M. So come with me now to a third, a converted third-floor warehouse in Sydney, which absolutely bustles with the sound of about a hundred employees, a long way from the company that she started at her kitchen table on a laptop. And uh, come now while Mia and I chat in her purpose-built podcast studio over a lovely cup of black tea. Hi, Mia. I'm good, Ash. How are Thanks you? Thanks for doing. I'm okay. I'm tired, but I'm okay. Are you? Two short weeks, and trying to fit a production oh. schedule that involves, as you no doubt know, uh, also you know the champagne problems of logies and things like that. And foolishly decided that breakfast radio is still a good idea this year. So uh, you are juggling a lot of jobs. I have work-strife balance, Mia. Do you? Let's talk <laughs> about that, Ash. I'll help you out. I've got a book you might like to read. Well, that's what I'm here for, which I'm excited by. You know because. When, when you look at your career and, and what you built out of, I mean, we sit here on a, on a rapidly becoming too small office floor, uh, teeming with people, and it's something that you built at your kitchen table. I know. Last time we, we spoke, we were in our old office, which we were growing out of at the time. Um, it, yeah, I, I finally, just in the last month or so, become comfortable referring to myself as a media owner. I own a media company. You own a media company? Yeah, with my husband. We own a media company. And I've not felt comfortable saying that for 10 years. We're 10 years old this year. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, you never felt comfortable saying that, no. wasn't it? Um, probably because... Um, uh, probably because of the likability index in terms of women, where the more successful you are, the less people like you. And I think it's also inherent that women want to be liked. So there's a lot, and I've, I've written about this in the book as well, there's a lot of um, demurring about your own success and your own achievements. So, for example, women on social media 
won't say they're proud about things. They'll say they're grateful or they're blessed. And that's a very passive state. You don't have a lot of men talking about feeling blessed and grateful. It's something as women, we feel like we have to do in case anyone think, thinks that we're sort of bragging or up ourselves. Is that a particularly Australian thing? I think it's partly Australian and partly female. Definitely. Wow. Sheryl Sandberg in Lean In writes about the likability index, which for men, the more successful and powerful you are, the more people like you. And for women, the less people like you, which is why every woman in the public eye has a really hard time on social media or gets a really hard time on social media and is often described as polarizing. Right. I do, I, c I can relate in the fact that, and I've talked about this on the show before, the first three years that I was in uh, America, um, I mumbled into my hand when people asked what I did back in Australia. Yeah. I was for Australian Idol. What? Yeah. So Whereas, is it good? Yeah, it's the number one show. Exactly. Americans would go, I was the host of the number one show on Australian television. And yes. they'd go, Good on you. Good for you. Yeah. People, I remember, never forget totally. it, a bloke stopped at party and goes, hey, everybody, we have the Australian secrets over here. Shit, really? Yeah. Dum -ba -dum -ba -dum -ba -dum. And, like, I think it was particularly, remember, I'd just done this, uh, like I was holding a DVD and, and, like, I was, you know, put a, a, a curated list of DVDs for a Christmas release for, um, I think it was Paramount. A universal or something, and I said, "Oh, yeah." And I just did this. I just did this campaign where I was like, "Your cardboard cutouts are in Kmart." Shit! Yeah, and I was so embarrassed about it. You know. So imagine that times ten for women. Yes. In any country. Yes. So, um, yeah, and also I think I feel like I'm. There are a lot of connotations that go with you know the media owner and media company. It's like I'm very much on the tools, and that's where I'm happiest. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I'm a podcast host, I'm a writer, I'm a content creator. Um, that's how I will think of myself. Yeah. You started in your house. I you did. moved out to one office into another office, out of one office into another office. I'm sure you're going to be moving out of here at any time soon. You've also made a, a, a fairly massive leap across the Pacific. Yeah, we've started, we've got an office in America now. So um, we're in New York, we're in Spring Street in New York and we've got a, a sister site over there that's called Spring Street at the moment um, and that wasn't something I was busting to do, that was more Jason. So uh, my husband has very much been the one who's driven the business forward always. So I'll, I'll have passion projects like podcasts was very much my idea and creatively I'll drive the business forward but strategically it's him. So I wasn't like sitting around going, I really want to make it big in America, like not even a little bit. I don't even want to live in New York. I think I'm the only person I know who doesn't want to live in New York. Um, but he felt that for the business strategically, it was very important to go into America. So um, I then had to uh, help figure out what creatively that would look like. And was it is it a case of well what can we do with the stuff that's already being made in australia and how can we culturally transfer that no it hasn't been up until now so um we're in the process of figuring out is the best thing to have maybe a 24-hour newsroom and to to combine it all um but at the moment it runs very separately so we've got a, a uh, some of our mama mia journalists work out of our, Amer our New York newsroom, but we have maybe 15 staff over there who are dedicated creating content because you can't just, I mean, they're not very interested in Malcolm Turnbull or Pauline Hanson over there, except when, of course, Donald Trump insults Malcolm Turnbull, in which case they're very interested in him for about five minutes. But what we write about here in Australia doesn't necessarily yeah. translate, but the irreverence, the humour the self-deprecation, all of those things do. And I know that because when I was an editor of Australian Cosmo, 
all the other 55 editions of Cosmo around the world loved the Australian content because it had something that they didn't have. Right. And so more and more we're starting to understand that Australia is a lot more applicable to the US than we initially thought. Mm. It's a real suck it and see process. And we've made some mistakes <laughs> along the way. I mean, we've made some mistakes with Mamma Mia. We've made some mistakes with, with in the US. But that's part of running your own business. You can only learn from mistakes, though. Yeah, we call it flurning, failing and learning. Flurning. Flurning. It makes you feel better about failing. I'm when you flirting. Go, yeah, I, that was a really good flirn. I had a good flirning experience. It was really good flirning. How was your day? Just I flirned the shit out of it. Exactly. <laughs> Instead of saying I fucked up big time today, it's like <laughs> so many flirnings involved in yeah. that. Yeah. Well, um, the what you spoke about earlier about being a media owner, mm. being the owner of a media company, what responsibilities do you see that come with oh my god have you taken a look out there at how many people are there and how many salaries we're responsible for and well, i'm looking at your body language changing oh, as you oh, <laughs> you're trying to disappear into the I chair know. it's like people go oh wow you've got so many people working for you but if you run a business i was talking to sally obermeter about this the other day people walk in and they go wow it's great you've got so many staff and if you're the owner of the business you're like yeah it's great we've got so many staff and they all need computers and they all need um you know, annual leave and they all need desks and they all need salaries. Um, So, you know, I spent the first 15 years of my career working for someone else and I would say I probably slept better during those 15 years than I have in the last 10. But um, it's exciting and you've got flexibility and autonomy that you don't have. You've got huge number of responsibilities. Um... And, and I've sort of give, talked about the back end, but there's also the front end, like what are we going to do with our reach? We've got massive influence. So we take certain decisions. Um, one of them is that our core purpose as a company is to make the world a better place for women and girls. So we measure everything we do against that. And I'm not going to pretend we're a community service or a charity program. We're not. We're a commercial business who's trying to make money. But you can still do that. I believe, and be a good corporate citizen and have a good core purpose. And I'll explain how that works. So, for example, we wouldn't – we have a policy where we do not support the paparazzi economy, and this will be of interest to you given your recent victory um, with the press council. Oh, thanks for taking note. (laughs) Of course we've taken note. And I think it's really important because sometimes people lump us in with a whole bunch of other media because, yes, we cover celebrities. Of course we do. We cover you. We cover – Sophie Monk, we cover Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, we cover Carrie Bickmore, but we only publish photographs of celebrities that they have shared publicly or that have been taken at a public place with their knowledge, like the Logies. We do not support the paparazzi economy by buying those photographs, even though that would get us so much more traffic. And it costs us money not doing that because the Daily Mail do that, News Limited do that, Fairfax, I think, do that. All our competitors do that and we choose not to because we don't think it's good for women or girls or men. And what about when it comes to editorial direction? I mean, we're hearing a lot certainly uh, in the news now about the the gravity of having someone who started uh, an alt-right news organisation like Steve Bannon. Uh, his organisation is called Breitbart. Someone like Breitbart or someone like Fox News, they have a, 
uh, having Steve Bannon in with the White House, but they have a distinct editorial uh, mm. direction mm. that they will not steer their ship away from. And in fact, they will find ways to spin every story into their line. Mm. Uh, what about when it comes to making editorial decisions and how, what angles you cover stories from? Well, we have always covered it from there, or we've passed it through the filter of is this good for women? Does this make women feel better or worse? And I should explain that that doesn't just mean it's a happy story or a nice you-go-girl story. You know, stories about crime, stories about um, that are sad uh, can still help women in teaching them something or giving them information or giving them entertainment in a funny video. There's lots of different ways to make the world a better place. It's not just about, you know, helping to secure water in a third world country, although that's that's part of it. And so we had a, a story on Mamma Mia about the plight of homeless women not being able to afford um, sanitary products. And one of our readers who read that went on to start a charity called Share the Dignity by which women um, donate tampons and tap pads and she's now affecting hunt the lives of hundreds of thousands of, of women on the street um so that's one form of making the world a better place but in terms of our editorial philosophy there's that and then there's also i mean we we don't have a p particular political bent there are some things that are absolute pillars of what we believe in so we are pro-science um we are pro-equality marriage equality um, of course, and just all kinds of equality, pro-tolerance. Um, but we have women from the left, from the right, and all the spaces in between who read us. And, and there have probably been times in the past where we have been a little bit more um, politically left-wing, and I think that was potentially influenced by people that we had working here at the time. And that was kind of right for the times because they were politically charged times and it was Julia Gillard and Tony Abbott and, and that whole debacle and it was a time when women were pretty pissed off. Um, but now I'd say we are much more balanced and diverse in the voices that we represent because I think it's important to not be in a bubble. I think we all learnt about that. I won't say that we've got many pro-Trump voices on. Um, and also, of course, um, reproductive rights. We're very pro-choice. Well, to be, I would put it to you that to be pro-equality, pro-marriage equality, um, pro, you know, th those things don't lean you either way. They just make you human. Yeah, I would like to think so. And those things you would imagine are the core of pro-science particularly. Those things would just make hopefully the core of any modern reason-based society and that you can have left and right-leaning people sit at the same table if they share those similar things in common, those pillars Such that you mentioned. Such a good point. And I think that in some ways those causes, both for and against, have been hijacked by both ends of the political spectrum because yeah. every friend I have and every acquaintance I have who I would <clears throat> describe as right-leaning and conservative share all of those views. I'm okay to listen to someone who's particularly on the other side of the political spectrum as yeah. me, if we if we both believe in the scientific method and at the end of the day a yeah. fact is a fact and we can't change it and we will make up our ideas about how we approach the use of that fact in our policy, I'm okay with that. When you absolutely deny that that fact exists, that it's becomes... It's very hard a, to have a conversation. That's a problem for me. And I think that it's, it's unfortunate that the extremes on both sides of politics speak the loudest because I think most of us are in the middle. Most of us yeah. are centrist, but broadly speaking. Those loud 
things that you're describing get the clicks. Angry people click. Absolutely. That's very, very true. And I think that that has had a huge impact in our political climate. You know, I was listening to a podcast yesterday that, that sort of said the election of Obama in 2008 was before we had smartphones. It was. Widely. So... Therefore, the kind of information that people were consuming and the way that they were sharing it is very different to now. And is that what's got Donald Trump into the White House? Probably. Yeah, that that and the Russian botnets and the oh, yeah. Mac- Macedonian kids exactly. making, making millions on Yeah, and they've been able to do all of that thanks <laughs> to the fact that we're all walking around with computers mm. and, you know, unlimited media in our pockets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you think about unlimited media, I mean, here you are, you have a copy of the book, yep. uh, Work Strife Balance, on the desk in front of us uh, and next to it an iPhone 7. Um, two things that one's going to phase the other out. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's true. I'm finding myself reading books more and more. Yeah. And Actual books or Kindle? Actual books. Yeah. I don't have a Kindle. I used to many years ago. But now I find that... I find it too tempting, and of course I've got iBooks downloaded onto my phone, but I want a break from looking at a screen sometimes. True. And that is why podcasts, I think, have grown so much in popularity, and I'm finding myself going back to paper books. Yeah. And I think that the um, uptake of e-books has slowed and stalled and I think even declined because I think there are a lot of people who went, oh, yay, e-books, and then went, oh, I want a break from my screen. And now paper books, I think, have overtaken them again. Yeah. I'm actually, when I mentioned that about one of making the other obsolete, so I'm reading this book called The Handmaidens at the moment. Oh, everyone's talking about that. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, What's it about? Uh, it's about uh, a not-too-distant future where the super, super, super conservative, where birth rates have plummeted through the floor and for whatever reason, human fertility, haven't got to that part yet, but human fertility is basically evaporating. And so uh, women, uh, the only book that you're allowed to read is the Bible. No one's allowed to write anything. It's like this ultra-conservative, wow. super-religious society, yet... Um, only the commanders, like the the men who are in charge, it's a very patriarchal society, the men who are in charge of certain sectors of the community, yeah. they're the only ones who are allowed to have sex with the handmaidens. Oh and every month they lie there and every month they get fucked and every month they wait to see if they're going to have a baby that is... And they've banned all like kind of uh, painkillers for birthing and any kind of thing that looks after the woman. And it's it's oh it's God. very intense. It's as if it is as if the like the alt right were to have yeah. all their pro choice pro, and every baby has to carry to term no matter what. See, reading this wouldn't be good for my anxiety. Trump's bad <laughs> enough. Oh, Trump's bad enough. You know, when I went to on. New York... Um, yeah, what was it like? I got out before well, I went down. It w- I, I was there twice last year before the election. Yeah. And I was really thinking about taking a gap year with the family and going over there and really working hard on the business and, and living there. But when I was there this year, it was the first two weeks of the Trump administration. And I was in New York. And I am very... I'm like a sponge energy right so for example i can't go to mardi gras anymore because i absorb all the drug energy and i get really it's as if i've taken drugs when i was in new york i just wanted to cry i was really weepy and i'm not a crier and i just wanted to come home and i felt sad and i felt despairing and it was like the city was in grief it was like they were grieving for it was just awful it was just awful and i don't know whether it it's calmed down since then but it made me come away going 
I don't want to live there. Like it used to feel that New York was the center of the universe and America was the center of the universe. But now it feels like it's decades backwards. Mm. Yeah. And it, Australia feels so incredibly progressive in comparison. Yeah, but then you you know, you look at somewhere like Copenhagen or somewhere. Yeah, that's you know, true. <laughs> and they're like, hang on, why are we still burning coal? Why? Yeah, no, that's I so true. I don't get it. Uh, so when you write sit down to write a book yeah. about work life balance and you understand as an author what kind of work it takes to write a book. Yes, I loved writing not for the internet. I've been <laughs> writing for the internet for ten years and I haven't been writing much lately anyway. I've been I've been um, doing more podcasting and doing other stuff and working in our New York business. But I bloody missed it. I really yeah. missed writing something uh, that was not just going to be consumed on a phone while standing waiting for a train. You know, it was really lovely to have the space and the context, when I say really lovely, it was also absolutely agonising and excruciating to have to write 100,000 words. But it was also a real privilege and a, and a, a luxury to have that sort of space and time to make a point that was not going to be reduced to a headline and not didn't have to be reduced to a tweet. Mm. I loved it. Loved it. Do you feel, I mean, obviously you've written a book about it, but you feel that you're in a good place in our community to go, I'm someone who knows about this sort of thing? I do now. And ironically, it took two men to give me the confidence to write this book. I have never felt comfortable giving people advice. I've always written in first person. And because I know also that women learn a lot from just reading about the experiences of other women and the opinions of other women without being told what to do. And it's not that I've told women what to do, but I have stepped up and owned the fact that I've learned some stuff, you know, through trial and error over 25 years of learning. working in women's media. Exactly, learning. I've been a parent for 20 years now. Um, I've r run my own business for 10 years now. I've been married um, for almost 20 years. Or I've been with my partner for, for more than 20 years, 21 years, except for the two years that we were separated. Um I know some stuff just through being 45 and it took my husband has been trying to get me to write this book for a long time and then I, I met with different publishers and I just assumed I would go with a female publisher and I met with um, Angus Fontaine at Pan Macmillan and he was like I, I had this book proposal and it was kind of another memoir really and he was like no nah, I want the book but you can do more than this. It's time to step up and get out of your comfort zone. And I was like, really? And I went. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. With him, knowing it would be the harder book to write, and it was, but I think it, it's a better book for the fact that I pushed and stretched. So how do you maintain your work-life balance when you're trying to oh my write God, a book I about work-life balance. I didn't. I've got pie charts at the end of it and it's got, you know, a pie chart of work-life balance and literally when, when I, you know, the, the sliver between the life section and the work section, the balance is different depending on different times in my life. And when I was writing this book, there was literally no life. It was all work. And my kids got upset. My husband rolled his eyes. I neglected the business. I neglected my friendships. I, it was incredibly grueling, but that's all right. Cause that's life. Some of the best things and most important things that you'll do, you're not balanced. Like being a parent, there's not a lot of balance in that. There are times when you need to lean into your family. There are times when you need to lean into your mental health. There are times when you lean, need to lean into work. And I think this idea that everything's got to be balanced all the time really is bullshit. And I think for women in particular, it's this ridiculous and yet another ridiculous benchmark that we're trying to live up to that's actually impossible. I mean, it's as bad as the thigh gap. No one's balanced. No one's got work-life balance. Or maybe for like six minutes on a Thursday afternoon, one week in March, you know, that's that's about it. It's something that right now, I mean, I'm at a, this interesting career moment, certainly as you know in, in my industry, it's very seasonal work. You take it when it's there. Exactly. Because then it goes away. You know, any audience pan across the crowd at Logies, you're like, oh, that guy, he hasn't done anything for years. You've got to make hay. You've got to. And so when a radio gig came up, like, yes, I absolutely want to do it. So um, so Audrey and I have been really struggling with this, and especially now that Gigi is 13. um, Because the other thing they don't tell you in the brochure is that your kids need you more as they get older, not less. Well, she pretends she needs us less. Oh, no. She needs quantity time, not quality time, which is annoying because it's for so many of us, so many women particularly slow down their careers until their kids are at school and then go into this second act and then lean into work and then it's like, oh, shit, but my teenager needs me to be around more. That certainly was my experience and no one tells you that. Yeah. They don't necessarily want to have in-depth, like, conversations. In fact, that's the last thing that they want, but they just want you to be around. Yeah. Someone, someone told me, um, and I said, oh, the conversations are just kind of monosyllabic now. Yeah. And this, uh, this guy, this guy told me, he said, look, yes, they are, but it's important that you're there for her to be annoyed at. So true. You've just got to be there for her to go, oh. Someone said if you, if you want... Someone to be happy when you come home during the teenage years, you should buy a dog. <laughs> We've got one. <laughs> well, they're happy to see you. He loves it. But that doesn't mean it's not important. So I was going to write this book a couple of years ago, but um, my son was doing his HSC and I knew that 
I couldn't afford to just vacate the family. I needed to be there. I needed to not be consuming all the oxygen in the family. Um, so I delayed it so that I could just be around that year, which is good because I actually found it to be the most confronting, and I, I write a chapter about this in the book, the most confronting difficult year as a parent I've ever had, harder than the newborn years. Well, maybe because you're expecting the newborn years to be hard, but no one told me that the year that your kid leaves school is gut-wrenching and challenging on so many levels that I never would have expected. Such as? It's a real shift in trying to understand what you are to them because my son, like most kids turn 18 in the year that they leave school. So your kid turns 18 and they've left school and suddenly all the infrastructure that has, especially if, if they've pulled away from you in their teen years, which they invariably do, all the infrastructure that has held up your relationship, the rules, the authority, the discipline, the uh, structure of them going to school and you being the parent, it's all gone overnight. Like overnight, it just is gone. Um, you can't ground an 18-year-old, you know. You can't stop them from doing anything. Um, and then when they've left school, you don't even have the school's authority over them that you can kind of hide behind. you got nothing. And I just became incredibly emotional. I, I found like I felt like I was losing him. I felt like I was – I didn't know who I was to him. I didn't know if our relationship – what our relationship would be or if we'd have a relationship. I didn't know that if I wasn't his mother in an authoritarian way – whether he'd even want to talk to me or hang out with me. Did you have a? Did you experience a moment where your relationship shifted with your own parents? Um, From child to adult. I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't know. I think I was. I mean, when I was in year twelve, I was dating a guy who was 32, 33 actually, who lived overseas. So my poor parents, that horse had bolted. There wasn't much that they could do. Um, I kind of made that shift from child to adult very much for them. I think that what I noticed with my brother, with my son, which was different to when I was at school, is that there are a lot of rituals now around kids leaving school. There are dinners and there are assemblies and there are events and breakfasts and stuff, and and it, which is awesome. But I cried through all of them. Like it's really – it helped me go through the transition, but – I found it so much more emotional than my, any of my kids starting school, right. which is when you're meant to cry. I cried the whole year pretty much. Like wow. I could barely look at him without crying. Oh. Yeah. How is it now? And I, I wrote about – now it's great. He works here. I can't get away from him. But <laughs> I also wrote about how um, in the book how people make a lot of – a big deal about the firsts, like the first tooth and the first steps and the first night sleeping through the night and all the first day of school and – no one talks about the lasts and the lasts are the things that you don't even see them until they've passed you. Mm. Like the last breastfeed, the last time they'll call for you in the night when they have a nightmare. The last, last time you time, can pick them up. The last time you can pick them up. Oh my God. The last time they'll reach for your hand in the street. And leaving school is a real telegraphed last. So I think that that's one that you can't just accidentally let slip past you. And I think I found myself really grieving because I really, I miss my son at two. I miss my son at five. I miss him at 12 and 13 and 14. All of those people are gone. Like they're gone. And they're replaced with someone who's amazing and I love obviously dearly. But 
I loved all those other, I'm going to cry now just thinking about it. I loved all those people too. And that's why when I look at Facebook, you know, it comes up with that memories of three years ago. Oh, worst. It's the worst. Thank you. Worst ever. It makes me really upset. And I think that's why, because I'm like, I miss that little kid from four years ago or five years ago. And, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't realize that. Is there any worry about what you will become? Because often you hear, you know, certainly I've heard women speak about it. Um, uh, you know, I have this new definition. I'm a mother. This is what I'm here to do. This is what I'm here to do. This is my thing. I know what I'm going to do for the next 18 years. And then when that's done, you're like, fuck, what do I do now? Is there a bit of that? Less so. There was some. Less so for me because I've always um, had um, one foot very firmly planted in my own life. Mm -hmm. As so, I've been a mum at the same time as having my own career and my own life separate from my children. I can't imagine how tough it would be for the women who have put their own lives on hold to exclusively be a mother. And I fear for them on every sense. I fear for them emotionally, and I feel fear for them financially because it's that's a very risky thing to do mm. to invest all your energy emotionally and financially in one person when you know that's going to come to an end um but but it it is interesting learning to be the mother of a young adult i mean luca and my relationship has always been very um reversed so he's always been more the parent than me and he he wrote a chapter in the book about how he's always had to be more responsible and and it was really hard to read a lot of it actually about what I was like as a mum and that's trippy like when your kid gets old enough to pass judgment on I mean you always know that you fucking things up and you always assume that they're going to deal with that with their therapist in the future just like we all have had to but when they're old enough suddenly to be able to articulate it back to you and for me to read that chapter back was a very big punch in the feelings for better and worse. Like, he's a good man and I've raised a really, really good man, but the things I did wrong cut deep. I wonder what... Because, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of dealing with this now yeah. in, my own, in my own family. Yeah. And that um, my mum, and if, if you haven't had to do it, you, it'll, it'll come. Uh, mum's moved out of her house into somewhere where she, she can get more care. And... Uh, I've got three brothers and watching us all kind of then deal with what mum is to them and, you know. And as that shifts and you guys have to step up. Yeah. Yeah. And who steps up. Yeah. That is fascinating. But you've got got more kids coming up the pipe. You don't have to say goodbye to all this. It's not the last for a while yet. Me? Yeah. More kids. Haven't you got more kids? Oh, I thought you meant, am I going to have more no, kids? No, no, no. You've got more kids who are going to be the last. Sorry. No, no, oh, you... God, yes. Exactly. And so when I was crying through, I've got an eight-year-old and a, an 11-year-old. So when yeah. I was crying through all these final assemblies for Luca, some of the other mothers would say, why are you crying? You've got two more to go. This isn't your last. Yeah. The ones that were crying the hardest were the ones, this was their youngest child and, yeah. and that was it for them. So, yes, you're right. I've got loads more to go yeah. but I think your first born there's something I think the first time you do anything the yeah. first time you give birth the first time they leave school it was a new experience for me I'll be better prepared the next yeah. two times funny you mentioned the last you know I when I showed up into Audrey and George's life um, by the time I moved in I just kind of scooted Indiana Jones style under the revol- under the lowering stone door of the lying in bed reading stories Ooh. I just got in there it's about six weeks Wow. And then it was over. It was That's over. That's really... It was very, very special. Yeah. 
And and you probably because you only scraped under the barrier and it was new for you, you probably really noticed the last time and you noticed you can remember what it was, yeah. but you probably didn't realize that it was the last time at the time. I had uh, it was I it came down to like twice a week. And yeah. Then, With hindsight, you go, ah, and then that was the last time. Yeah. And it's like, oh. I think I fell asleep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when she was reading. Yeah. We don't have those rituals for the, for the, for the lasts. We have them for the firsts. And yeah. There are so many things that I really miss. Like, you know, as, as you know, I'm sure um, the best time to talk to a teenager or any kid, but particularly a teenager is in the car because you've got a captive audience. Yeah. And when they get their license, that just evaporates Gone. overnight. Yeah. And that was sad. Because yeah. I did my best lectures in the car. <laughs> I did my best life lessons in the car. <laughs> I do a lot of a little lot of texting. Texting has been phenomenal. I have yeah. to say the the ability to text with your kids it's it's a little bit like those you know those toddler leashes. In some ways, phones are like those leashes mm. because you know my husband rolls his eyes sometimes at the constant contact I'm in with Luca or with now Coco's got a phone, um, but. I found that it's really opened up my relationship, not just with my kids, but with my parents, because sometimes a phone call is just too hard and mm. takes too long. Mm. But just being able to pop in and out of each other's lives through mm. the days is a lovely thing. Oh, I've graduated to text. At first, it was only Snapchats. Because oh. that's, that's how she communicates with everyone in her life. So yeah, I I've can't expect that. her to communicate me with me in a way that she doesn't communicate with anybody but else. But does she want you on Snapchat or not want you on Snapchat? Because that's kind of like her friend space. Uh that's why I'm now on text, I think. Yeah. 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 She, occasionally I'll see that she'll um, like an Instagram story of mine or something like that. But, you know, she's in that world. And I, you know, I don't, I don't really intrude too much upon that. And that's that. the thing for, for parents is navigating the social media contact that's appropriate with their kids. Mm. And boy, did I mess that up a lot of times. And yeah. we talk so much about parents making social media rules for kids but kids also need to make them for their parents because it's m things that parents don't realize are embarrassing for kids are actually mortifying like i oh, i remember luca didn't talk to me for a long time because i did friend requests to a bunch of his friends on instagram oh he's like mom that's so weird how could you do that and i've told you or if i've left a comment or a like on one of his posts horrified mm. and you're like but why but what i don't understand I just gave a thumbs up emoji. Yeah, it's. I, I guess it's the it's the waiting in the car out the front. Yeah, you uh, have to lurk. You can't. You can't school. be visible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So with um, you said you know you've you've created this business to uh, to make the world a better place for women and girls. Uh, the last time we spoke on this podcast, Gigi wasn't even in my life. No. I had no idea who she was. Um, and now I've got this thirteen-year-old girl who's nearly as tall as me. Um, and she wears all her mum's clothes. Um, Does it feel like a huge responsibility? Do you feel like you're standing with your arms outstretched between her and the world sometimes? Mm, she's very, very smart. She's a very smart kid and she has quite good boundaries. And like, for example, she came home from the Easter show the other day, which is like the Echo in Brisbane or the Lug Royal show, like the county fair if you're in the States. And she had this massive stuffed panda. Where'd you get that from? Oh, my friend won it for me because he's really good at basketball and I can't shoot. And in my head, I'm like, you went to the show with four girls. And I'm doing all the maths. No, she didn't. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, so your friend, so you met a guy there 
and he had either offered or you asked him to shoot hoops to win you this big toy. And we all know how many hoops you've got to shoot to win the big toys. Define friend. My well, friend. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think she's of the age of just like, okay, I got my thing there. Thanks, bye. Yeah. Meanwhile, right. he's like. <gasps> Love struck. Because at the moment, thankfully, the boys that she's going to parties with are still her age. And they're all half her size. To be honest. Yeah, right. They're, oh, yeah. yeah, it's that age where yeah. they're just they're 13 they look boys. like different ages. They've got nothing. But it won't be long. It won't be long at all. Is she watching 13 Reasons Why? Oh, we watched that together. I've started watching it and I am so horrified I can't even speak. Should yeah. I keep watching it? I feel um, like it's suicide glamour porn. What was more horrible, I guess, useful to me, um, there's some pretty, I'm not sure you've read about it, there's some very graphic depictions of sexual assault and very graphic depictions of how quickly something can be misconstrued and a no turns into a yes and suddenly someone's having sex and they didn't realise. And so that allowed us as well to have those moments of like, to understand like boys are fucking slugs and they will do that sometimes. So you've got to be so careful. Being able to watch that with her is the biggest gift you could give because I think that, of course she was going to watch it. Like all the kids are watching it. Yeah. You can't stop them. She's going to watch it. Um, they're all, they've all watched it. They're all watching it. So the fact that you can watch it and talk talk about it with her mm. is just crucial. She's got, she's got really good boundaries. Still, thankfully, doesn't realise that guys are checking her out. But that's, that's a beautiful thing. That's, I think that's weeks away from ending. Oh, that's so beautiful. It's funny. I, I write um, also a, a chapter about what you've just said, about that idea of sexual assault. And no, I, I've talked about how this idea of being fearless is really stupid. Like, don't teach anyone to be fearless. Do not teach your kids to be fearless. Yeah. Teach them to be fearful because your fear will save you. Not walking around the world being terrified all the time, but... Fear tries to save our life. Mm. Like there's a good reason to be scared. It's just what you're scared of. Like if you're scared to go to a job interview or if you're scared to um, put yourself out there by writing something or creating a, a piece of art, that's not a helpful piece of fear because that's just your fear misguidedly trying to stop you from failing or from, from being embarrassed. But they now talk about with, with kids and young people it's not about stranger danger anymore it's about i think they call them funny feelings or something like that it's about your gut instinct it's about when something in your stomach goes "Uh, uh-uh, this isn't right mm. listen to it yeah and get out get away yeah um don't be fearless because fearless people are insane yeah and that I, and that's the thing I, I i always tell her as well especially about getting out i just said look no matter what no matter where you give me a call i'll come and get you i don't care where you are i don't care what you're doing Have you heard about the x plan Tell me about the X plan. I'm using my thumb. So the X plan is where you just have a, an understanding and a code with her that if she sends you an X, that means come and get me. And you do it, no questions asked. No, I like it. It means that um, she doesn't have to be embarrassed by if a friend sees her texting, can you come and get me? I'm yeah, really yeah. There. If she's in a situation that she feels uncomfortable with or if people are doing things that she's not ready for, yeah, she can just send you an X and you will come, no questions asked, oh, and absolutely. you will get her. Absolutely. and I've, That trust is crucial, I think. It is. And, you know, I, and I guess the only other thing I tell her and I try and tell that to when we are in the car with her mates, when they do ask me questions, they go, oh, what a, why do boys do this? Why do boys do that? I just try and tell them, look, you know, the thing to remember with boys is they're not very clever, 
and they do dumb things. But the moment you get more than one of them, that kind of halves and their ability oh, to be yeah. smart just divides itself by the amount of men that are in the same room. So five guys are five times stupider than one guy and five guys will do five times stupider things than one guy. Like when there's more of them, they get dumber. Add alcohol into that, it gets even more dangerous. So just understand that if you're with a, like a, a bunch of like five or six dudes and they're oh. all drinking, it's far more of a... Heck, like it's fun and exciting. Don't get me wrong. It's fun and exciting to be around. But it's the potential for stupidity and danger. Yeah. And once I told them that, I remembered as a you know former drinker being at parties and there's certain – I remember looking around a room and suddenly all the girls have gone and I couldn't understand why. Now I know because yeah. I was one of those guys. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. What a great lesson to be able to teach her. And, and I, I say that we have to teach our – girls and boys, every drink you have reduces your ability to make good decisions. Every drink you have, every drug you take gives you worse judgment. No one made a better decision when they were wasted. No one. So (laughs) that's a really important message. And I think we have to be able to give that message to girls. You know, a, a few years ago, I wrote about the fact that we need to be able to talk to girls about binge drinking without being accused of victim blaming and immediately I was accused of victim yeah. blaming. I remember that one. Yeah. Mia Friedman. Like to call oh it. my God. So it was like Mia Friedman defends yeah. herself from accusations that she's blaming rape victims. It's like, no, we can have multiple conversations at yeah. once. And some people were like, what do you tell your, you, what do you tell your sons? Do you tell your sons not to rape? And I'm like, what do you reckon? Yeah. I tell my sons as well, every drink you have. And I, Luca writes in, in the book, I tell him, He's got to be the good guy. Be the good guy. Be the one that's holding her hair back, not trying to pull her pants down. Be the one that's making sure all the girls are getting home okay. But for girls, every drink you have removes that, it gets you less in touch with that gut instinct mm. that is trying to keep you safe. Yeah. That is trying to say, hang on, I'm in a situation that might not be good for me. I'm, and it, it, it hampers your ability to run. It hampers your ability to scream. That doesn't mean that if something does happen to you, it is in any way your fault. And I get pissed off that people think that you can't have those two conversations at once mm. um, because I, th- I think you have to. Yeah. I think you have to. Otherwise, I don't think it's good for anyone. I don't think it's good for anyone. We have to talk to boys and girls. So what would you say to, what would you say to boys about that? Um, drinking can make you misread certain cues and signals and situations it's not always as black and white as no and yes. Sometimes if you're drunk and that the, the video about tea and consent is just so good and every boy and every girl needs to, to Google it. It's on YouTube. It's, it compares um, it, consent with or sex with having a cup of tea and it talks about if someone's drunk or, or asleep, they don't want a cup of tea. And if someone says they want a cup of tea and then they fall asleep, don't try to make them have a cup of tea. And it, it, it's really clever and kids love it and it's line drawings and it's absolutely brilliant. And um, I've been in, in roomfuls of, of school students and they just laugh uproariously and parents are really comfortable with it as well. So it's a good one at every age. But I think that it's so unhelpful to just categorise. Of course, there are clear-cut examples of sexual assault, but there are a lot of instances where people can misread social cues and they can alcohol does not help that alcohol Mm. does not help you recognize 
a situation that you might be in or that you might be putting someone else in. So, um, yeah, just just I, be aware. And it's not like don't ever drink. I mean, I'm not stupid. Of course you're going to drink. Sometimes the reason that girls and boys drink is to not have that fear Yeah, and to be disconnected from that gut feeling. Uh, you, try and, and if men you and walk women. into that room, there's what, <laughs> yeah. 100 people out there? Yeah. You can ask them how many people are with someone that they first ever hooked up with when there was booze involved. Oh, my God. All right. Yeah. Um, I, I, speaking, you've written a book about work-life balance, and I understand that I have five minutes of your time left. Uh, so I'm going to smash through these last two bits very quickly. As much as you want, babe. I'm here for you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but I also have to be home when Gigi gets home. Yeah, right. So. More importantly, <laughs> don't make it about me. It's about no, both I, of us. No, but I was I, I, I was three minutes late, and then yeah. I had to set up. So I'm okay. aware that I, I, I busted your time out. Um, so when it comes to... Isn't that interesting? You've got to be home when she gets here. She'll probably never won't talk to you. Okay. She'll probably barely acknowledge you, but it's really important that you're there. Yeah, yeah. But not everyone can be there. Some people have to stay at work until six o'clock. That's okay. And she would also be okay. But anyway. No, but no. It's just all about making people not feel bad, isn't no, it? No, no, but this is true. But is this... We're all doing our best. That's, is that the core message, you think, of the book? The message is that we're all doing our best. Um, we really are. Of course, there are some people who are just terrible parents and terrible people, but I don't think they're the ones lying awake at night worrying that about their work-life balance and worrying that they're getting it wrong. Um, the core message is that we've got to stop comparing ourselves to other people's highlight reels and their Instagram feeds and uh, what we see once upon a time it used to be comparing yourself to what you see in magazines. Now it's comparing yourself to what you see on Instagram or on Facebook. Um, we have to stop being so tough on ourselves in terms of feeling like we're failing if we don't have work-life balance all the time or feeling like we're failing if we are leaning into work or leaning into home or taking time out. Um, we're all just doing our goddamn best. <laughs> um, and some days that'll be good. Some days that won't be very good. But there's another day. I love it. And the final thing I want to ask you about is when I first came to see you at your old office by the water um, in November of 2013, I used these very microphones to record a podcast with you. And now you have an empire of podcasts. Wow, now we've got a podcast studio. In the You're city. way ahead of us. Yes, but I don't have a media company You're to be way able to sell my advertising yet. What do you see is the future of podcasting in Australia? I see podcasting as only growing, but I'm seeing a lot of bad podcasts out there. I'm seeing a little bit what happened with the internet where um, suddenly everyone thought that they could have a blog, which is so fine. If you just want to do that for creative expression, if you want to make a podcast for creative expression, that's fine. If you want to write a blog for creative expression, go nuts. But if you want an audience, if you want to try to appeal to an audience, it's harder than it looks. It's harder than it seems. And you've got to constantly be thinking about that audience. I'm seeing a lot of people just putting out stuff that they want to put out rather than thinking is there an audience for this? And again, maybe you don't care if there's an audience for it. Maybe maybe it's just for you and it's a passion project or a side hustle. Awesome. But it's harder than it looks. It's really hard. I mean, it's always been harder than it looks. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of people doing women's websites now because they've suddenly discovered women and, and we've been doing it for 10 years. There's a lot of people starting to do podcasts. And we got it wrong for a number of months before we started to get it right and we've built our podcast network over the last couple of years. Um, just always think about your audience. 
Think about who you're making it for. And if the answer is you, go nuts. Be happy about that. What, what do you think about what the public's perception of podcasts will be in two years, five years? Oh, I think most people don't even know what a podcast, really doesn't understand what a podcast is. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we always say, get, get someone's phone and download mm. the podcast app onto it and show them because they don't really understand. And some mm. people, you know, some of the mums at, at my school will go, oh, I've been listening to this podcast. It's about this murder. I think it's called Serial. Mm. And they've just discovered it. Brilliant. And they're so excited. Mm. Um so, yeah, don't, don't go into podcasting thinking you're going to get rich um, <laughs> because it's a very, very crowded market. Yeah. And, and to do it well takes a lot of time. Yeah. You know, our, our, um, we've got a whole team that works on our podcasts. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm, when I think about what penetration are in the, is in the market right now yeah i think it's just a fraction don't you yeah, i think it's, it's only going to grow it's got to be like what maybe seven eight percent yeah and like which is so exciting it's so exciting that it's at this level now um but I, I personally i personally feel that someone like you with when people when there is so much chaff uh if you can go to a particular network and go aha even though we're in this world of independent digital broadcasting i still need some degree of curation yeah and, and quality Q control. Yes. And that, the yeah. curation of the quality comes from being a part of a network. Say in the States you have um, Earwolf or Panoply or something like that or Gimlet. Um, and, mm. uh, and, and like here, most definitely like ABC is fantastic mm. but as far mm. as like yourselves. Um, I certainly think that that is, you know, it's an exciting time. And then, of course, you have the exception to the rule, which is um, Chat 10 Looks 3 with Lee <laughs> Sales and Annabelle Crabb who record their podcast Whenever they feel like it, sometimes they'll go six weeks without recording one. And usually it is in the noisiest possible place with the worst sound quality you've iPhone. ever heard on an iPhone. The last time it was on a plane, uh -huh. Lee says they think maybe one day they'll do it in a drum factory. It is like, it's hilarious, yeah. but it is probably one of the or the biggest podcast in Australia. So it is still possible if you've got a compelling enough off offering True. to break all of those things we've just talked about, which is quality and consistency yeah. and, and uh, you know, control, yeah, they but just it, knock it out of If it's compelling, people always want yeah. to listen. Yeah, it is. Something that was so fascinating to me after listening to um, S-Town, which we could talk about for 100 years, but oh, yeah. I was listening to a lot of um, interviews with Brian Reid, the um, producer and the narrator, and he said that at This American Life, who were, of course, the gold standard of yeah. podcasting, they spike or reject 50% of the stories that they create. Now, that is one hell of a business model because for the rest of us, we couldn't possibly have that much fat. Can you imagine that? Yeah. But just think of the resources that they have there at NPR. Yeah. Like that's just right. That's monster. right. That's right. And like WNYC as well, which is uh, the stuff that do free economics and but things like that. When you look at the quality, to be the gold standard, yeah. to, to reject 50% of what you create. Good Lord. Yeah, that gives you a sense of the what goes on underneath the but tip of the But it also gives you a sense of the scale of their business if they're able to afford to reject 50% of what they create. Absolutely true. But like, I don't know if we have to go, but S-Town, what, four years? Yes. It took him four years? I find that just extraordinary. Well, he did everything else? That old media. And then it, there's a, a book I just read recently by Ariel Levy who works for The New Yorker who I absolutely adore and she has got two months to write her next story. And I'm like, imagine that. Imagine having two months. And I think she does like two or three stories a year. 
and he's paid a fortune. But I can't imagine that that money is going to be around forever. And I don't think she woke up like that. I'd say that's 20 years of work that's gone into the... She's pretty young. She's only about 40. Uh, Yeah, yeah, of course. She's earned that. But the fact that there could be any business model that could give someone two months to work on a story, more power to them. But I don't think that's the way of the future, unfortunately. Mia, I can't thank you enough. I love you, Ash. Always love Love you. Love you a long time. And you. (laughs) Have a great one. Bye. That was Mia Friedman. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Mia Friedman, F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N. If you heard anything there that you uh, enjoyed listening to, by all means, let her know. Uh, She's very active online. And uh, get her brand new book. It's called Work, Strife, Balance. It's out now wherever you buy books because books are awesome. Um, Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to everyone that supports the show on Patreon. Without you, I cannot make this show. And I cannot pay uh, Haley and Andy, who work so hard every week to make this show. Thank you so much to Toe Hider for the fantastic music each and every week. Um, if you need me between now and I talk to you next time, you can always email me. Send us your email at gmail.com. Until then, have a fantastic week. I love you for listening. Um, check out some old episodes. If this is your first time here, I hope you enjoyed it and you come and explore a little more of the back catalogue. But until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>